don't get burned this summer. Sales is not a numbers game. Find out the details on what I mean on today's show. Now, before we get started today, I want to share a quick video about Epic 2021. You don't want to miss it in Las Vegas, Nevada, coming up very soon. Epic is epic. There's nothing like it. The encouragement, some fresh ideas. You need to show up. You'll get your mind blown. Great breakout session. Take something new back. Help and tools. You can implement the next day. Great speakers. That was a great experience. We have the top experts in our industry. Collaboration as we work together and trust one another. As I mentioned, Epic's going to take place in Las Vegas this year on October 28th and 29th. You can get signed up at epic2021event.com, epic2021event.com. Again, you don't want to miss it. It's going to be an exciting event, tons of great content, tons of great speakers. So get signed up today because tickets, my friends, are limited. Now, on today's show, we got the legend, or is it the icon? I'm not sure I get him confused. I think it's the icon, Mr. Drew Cameron. He's going to be talking about sales is not just a numbers game. Right? It's easy to think that when it's the busy summer season, but it's not exactly what you think it is. Check out Mr. Drew Cameron as we continue our Seizing the Summer content. Hey everybody, Drew Cameron here for the EJIA Seizing the Summer Series. I'm gonna to talk to you about sales leadership for making the most of your blue ocean opportunities this summer. And I'm gonna specifically talk to you uh, in this episode about sales not being a numbers game. Don't get burned this summer. So to do that, let's go over to the whiteboard. Now, what we're talking about here, sales not being a numbers game. Yes, we measure statistics. Yes, we measure the numbers. And that's important because you know, the statistics and the data matter but the statistics and the data are a product of what we do, the activities. But so sales is not really a numbers game and people seem to think that it is. It's just, you know, you play out the numbers, it's the law of averages, so forth and so on, and that's not really true. So let's talk about specifically what do I mean by that? Well, revenues versus profits. Revenues are vanity and profits are sanity. 
you need to keep what you make. Now, top line revenue is important and that's what sales drives. But sales has to drive the right mix of revenue, the right mix of business to get you the right results. And you gotta make sure that your salespeople are on task, on price book, to get you the right margins. Otherwise, you could basically die by a thousand paper cuts. Meaning the more you sell, the more you could end up hemorrhaging and bleeding out. If you sell the wrong mix of business, if you sell the wrong price uh, mix of business. So revenues are important, but we gotta drive profits because profits are where the sanity is. Revenues are vanity. Meaning, you know, the, if the only lever you have in your cockpit is to go faster, yeah, yeah, that's a problem. Sometimes you've got to adjust the flaps, you've got to adjust the wings, you've got to adjust your, your speed, you've got to adjust your, your altimeter, so forth and so on. And sales is the same way. So let's talk about some of the details that I'm focusing in on here. The problem is, is that most salespeople focus on winning. Meaning, if we measure sales and we're measuring results, we're measuring outcomes, the more sales, the more successful is the way most people look at this. The problem with that is, is focusing on that objective does not get you that result. In fact, quite frankly, today, more than ever, if you focus in on that intent, that objective of trying to sell more, you end up driving customers away. Customers want to do business with people who are looking out for their best interest, not for the company's best interest, or for the salesperson's best interest. They want to do business with somebody who's going to focus on their best interest. And so your intent has to match that. And if your intent is right, and then you can get better results. So we don't want to focus on winning. And so John Wooden was a UCLA basketball coach. He coached the UCLA Bruins for many, many years. And he was one of the most winningest coaches in any sport at any level at the time in which he coached. Think about that. The most winningest coach of any sport at any level. Let's look at the statistics, okay? 10 NCAA titles. You're thinking March Madness. Unfortunately, we didn't get to have that this year, but he won 10 of them. And at one point, seven in a row. Never been matched, unheard of statistic. Won 38 straight tournament uh, wins. 88 game win streak over four seasons. Four undefeated seasons, 19 conference championships. In fact, an 81.3% winning percentage in his 40 seasons of coaching, 27 of which were at UCLA. UCLA. So think about that, an 81% connection or closing ratio. If you could do that, what would that mean to your business? What would that mean to your customers? What would that mean to your company? What would that mean to your coworkers? What would that mean to your bank account? What would that mean to your life? What would that mean to your community? So, 81.3% winning percentage over 40 seasons. Talk about consistency of execution. And that's the magic. John Wooden focused in on the consistency of execution. He never used the word win or winning in practice, in a pregame speech, or in a halftime speech. Never. In fact, he's well known for being a master leader. In fact, he was the mentor of today's leadership master or guru, John C. Maxwell. John Wooden was his mentor. And he didn't focus on the statistics. He focused on the execution, the activities. He, he realized that he couldn't ma uh, manage the emotional ups and downs of winning and losing basketball games. That that didn't lead to consistent execution from game to game, from play to play within the game. If everybody was focused on the scoreboard and not on the execution, the scoreboard didn't turn out the way that they wanted it to. So he didn't worry about the scoreboard. He told his team not to worry about the scoreboard. He said, 
focus on every play, every possession, every defense, uh, every defensive possession as well. And if you focus on that, the results will be what they should be, when they should be. Meaning we will win, and therefore he did, and they did. Unmatched at any sport. In fact, if you think about it to this day, there are other people who have won, um, won more games than he has, but when you look at the statistics and the consistency, unmatched. So the numbers do tell a story, and the numbers are important, but they tell a story, and yes, KPIs, KPIs are important. Key performance indicators are important. We've got a lot of them all over the EJA site. The key to that, though, is, is that there are guidelines to those KPIs, and we've got to make sure that we're all keeping score the exact same way, because if we don't, then it doesn't matter what the key performance indicators are. But you've got to make sure that you're keeping score the same exact way because the details matter. Context matters, number one. Number two is the key performance indicators are also going to vary by market in some cases because maybe prices are different in certain markets because of the cost of living is different in certain markets. But when we talk about statistics as far as the KPIs of performance of the salespeople, that's where we get into the context and the details matter. So think about it this way. If I was to tell you that I played a round of golf and I shot a 72, is that a good score? You don't know. You really just don't know. Why? Because I didn't tell you that I played 18 or 9. I also didn't tell you what par is. But let's assume that par is 72. And I did play 18. Now is 72 a good score? Again, you don't know. Because what if I am you know, a minus 3 handicap? And therefore, I should have shot under par. So 72 maybe is not a great day out there. What if I told you I shot 72, but the rest of the field shot 65 or better? Again, now I'm not having a great day again. But if I told you I shot 72, the rest of the field shot 72, is that a good day? Again, you don't know. How many fairways in regulation did I hit? How many greens in regulation did I hit? You know, did I you know, uh, single putt, two putt, or three putt all the greens? You know, did I get stuck into any traps? And see, so statistics, while important, don't tell the story. And what we need to do is focus in on the story. What happens with most contractors is they get statistics, and they look at it, and they judge performance. And they're not judging the story that led this, the, to, you know, to the statistics. The statistics are the score, if you will, after the game has been played. So think about this. Roy Halladay, former pitcher for the Philadelphia Phillies, unfortunately passed away uh, a few years back in a plane crash. But he had a perfect game when he pitched for the Phillies against the Marlins. They won uh, that game one to nothing when they played the Marlins in Miami. Which, so if you look at the byline of the, uh, or the box score of the game, the Marlins had zeros in every box. No runs, no hits, no errors, no bases on balls. But that doesn't tell the whole story, right? Because how did he get to that result? How many pitches did he throw? He threw 115. How many cutters? How many fastballs? How many curveballs? How many sliders? And you don't know that. How did they play on offense? How many awesome plays were made on defense? That's what we need to you know, look at as leadership, as managers, as owners within the business. What's the story behind the statistics? So when you look at your P&L, for example, uh, on a monthly basis, and you look at the income statement and the balance sheet and so forth, those results are a, a result of the story. Don't just judge the bottom line. Don't just judge the top line. Don't just judge what happened in the middle. 
what's the story that happened? What are the attitudes and the actions and the behaviors and the activities and the results that got us the score? That's what we need to focus in on. So context and details matter when we look at statistics. Because again, these are just statistics. And by all measures, John Wooden was a fantastic ba basketball coach. But if you actually look deeper below the statistics, you understand why. Because he didn't coach winning. He coached execution. He coached excellence on every possession. And that's how they played the game. Because that's exactly what it comes down to. It's how you play the game that determines the, the uh, statistics that you get, the results that you get. So let's take a look at some statistics and some results. First off, let's look at the cost of a no. right? Because most salespeople can tell you about the sales that they won, but they forget about telling you about the ones that they lost. In fact, the ones they tell you that they lost, they, it's always the customer's fault. Well, in my experience, in the history of target shooting, if you miss the target, it's never the target's fault. right? So not getting a piece of business is not the customer's fault. That comes down to the salesperson. So let's dive into some of those statistics. What is the cost of the no, of a no? Because running more leads does not ultimately get you more sales. In fact, in my experience, when you start giving more leads to salespeople, closing ratios tend to go down. Average tickets tend to go down. And so we can't just fo start focusing on throwing more leads at salespeople because you're going to get more no's. And what's the cost of the no? It goes beyond the statistics. In some cases, if you go out there and start quoting jobs, and may, or running leads anyway, but maybe not getting the quote to the customer. Now the customer's had a bad experience. If you go out there and you're rushing through the opportunity and you don't educate the customer on how to buy and where value comes from, again, the customer gets a less than stellar experience. If you go out there and you're priced higher than the competition, albeit you should be priced differently than the competition, but if the customer thinks that you're offering the same value proposition or as far as scope of work as the competition, but you tend to be three to four or five thousand dollars more than the competition, the customer's going to walk away with a feeling that you're just trying to rip them off or you're high priced. And, and so again, gets a bad experience. And so that becomes the reputation of the company. So the cost of a no goes beyond the statistics because it can damage your company reputation. So running more leads is never the answer you know, to more business. Running more leads is never in the customer's best interest. And running more leads is never in the interest of the, custom, uh, of the company. Right? And it definitely isn't in the interest of the salespeople, no matter how much they tell you they want more leads. So we'll, let's dive through some of these statistics. Okay, think about uh, leads, right? If we, are, as average, on average, as a contractor, pay about $325 to $500 per lead to generate that through all our marketing costs, that's about what we see in the industry. It's $325 to about $500 per lead. And that's going to vary based on the area of the country and based on what you do in the way of marketing and the, your marketing costs. But I want to give and this is a KPI for me, key performance indicator, 1.5 leads per day to a salesperson. So that means one some days, two other days. Now if you get busy you know, this summer, then no more than three. They can't run that, uh, that many more than three and be as fresh and chipper as they need to be for a customer and be focused. Because there's windshield time. There's time on the call. There's windshield time between calls. They also have to do some phone call follow-up. They need to probably do some activities in the office, process some job files, even albeit they may be electronic job files, they still have to do that, that, that work. But 1.5 leads per day, five days a week. I understand on occasion you may run a sixth and seventh day. That's okay too, but I'm going to play conservative. 1.5 leads times five days a week, 50 weeks a year, 
Okay, now you can adjust obviously for vacation and holidays, we, but we added for 50 week, allowed for 50 weeks. That's gonna give you 375 leads. I think that's a good book of business for a salesperson to run on an annual basis. In fact, that's what I managed in my company and that's what I do with all of my contractors that I work with. I try and keep them below 400 leads that the company will give to them. Now, if they self-generate some stuff or they get some referrals, or they're part of like a business networking group or something like that, then fine, they can add those in there because those are typically gonna just close anyway. The closing ratios on self-generated leads and, and self-generated referrals, uh, as well as business networking opportunities you know, through uh, BNI or LATIP or the Rotary Club, uh, those closing ratios tend to be about 85, 95% anyway because of the relationship. So it's not that they have to, I don't wanna say that it's not that they don't have to work as hard, but it is a little bit of a, an easier road to hoe on the sales process. But I'm gonna apply a conservative 50% closing ratio here which is gonna result in 188 jobs, 188 sales, if you will. I'm gonna put in a conservative average ticket of $8,500, okay, average purchase price, and I'm gonna therefore allow for a 10% commission and a 20% net profit to the company. So when you play that out, what happens is, is the salesperson makes $850 you know, for each job on average, right? And at 188 jobs, ends up earning 159,000, almost $160,000 a year right, for that business, for running those leads and getting those results. And the company makes $1,700 uh, profit, net profit, before taxes, or about 300, almost $320,000 a year in net profit from that book of business, if you will, okay? So, in essence, this is like almost $1.6 for the salesperson in sales. That's, that's, a, that's a decent, healthy salesperson. Right? And again, I, I was very conservative in my approach. And you can adjust for your area of the country, your salespeople. Obviously, if you've been in business a little bit longer, I like to see guys doing you know, two, 2.3, 2.5, 2.8 million. Again, on average, and, and being conservative there. Here's the interesting thing, though. That's what we get for the business that we sell. Well, what about the business that we didn't get? The leads that we didn't close, right? There's 50% that we didn't connect with. See, the problem is, is, again, salespeople remember the ones they got, not the ones that they didn't. And the company doesn't even focus on those either. So the way I look at it is, what if I were to basically say, okay, I have 1.6 million in business that resulted in these, uh, this income for the salesperson and this income uh, for the company. But if I take the 1.6 million and I divide it by 375 opportunities, not 188 jobs, okay, now each opportunity is worth $4,261 or to the salesperson, 426 bucks. And to the company, each opportunity is worth $852, right? And so when I lose a job now, when I lose a sale, I've lost this kind of money, right? Don't focus on just what you make when you make money, okay? Focus on what happens when you lose too, right? I mean, if, if every job is 8,500 on average, you might be saying, okay, well then, then every lost sale is worth 8,500 too, right? Okay, I, I, I agree with that argument, but if we go ahead and we just divide it by the number of leads that we run, everything that we do matters then. Every activity that we do matters. So job files matter, right? Phone calls matter. Uh, you know, running, uh, you know, working the home show. We're working a, a mall expo or if you're part of Lowe's or Home Depot or Costco and those types of leads, doing that, processing job files, going back and making sure customers are happy, delivering the thank you gift, 
meeting the, the crews out on the job. So you're now taking, you're paid for all of that activity. And so when I don't get a sale, guess what? I just made 426 bucks. Okay. When you don't get a sale, in your mind, you make nothing. You only make $850 when you make a sale. See, I like to basically say for every lead I run, whether I get it or not, this is what I'm making. So now every opportunity pays me. So don't just focus on the ones that you get. Also look at the ones that you don't get. Look at that other side of the statistic because there's 50% here that we get, but there's another 50% that we lost. So let's talk about maximizing connection ratio. You all call it conversion or closing ratio. I like to call it connection because the only way that people are going to buy from us is if we connect with them in their story. So we measure a connection ratio. And, but I want to play, play out a, a, a scenario that I encountered with a client several years ago right here in Colorado Springs. Uh, in fact, the company that Weldon Long worked for where I hired him, after Weldon left that company, we hired another gentleman to replace Weldon. And he did a great job for the company. But when I first met him, he was really focusing in on a one-call close every time. And so he called me one month, and he told me, hey, hey Drew, you know, you keep telling me I should do, be doing more two-call closes. And so this is back in the mid-2000s, uh, like about 2006 time frame. And he ran 42 leads. He sold 21 of them. And he told me, he says, Drew, I sold 17, 17 of the 21 on the first visit, and I sold four in follow-up. And now knowing this gentleman, I know he didn't even follow up you know, with these guys at all because he quoted them all on the first visit. In fact, he quoted all 42 on the first visit. He connected with 21 and 17 bought on that first, you know, first visit. Four of them called him and asked him to come back and do the paperwork and, and obviously earn their business. And so he said to me, he says, Drew, he says, you're telling me that I should run a lot fewer, uh, a lot more two call closes and a lot fewer one call closes. He says, but look at my statistics. I closed 80% of them on the first visit. 80% of them I closed on the first visit. And only 20% of them did I get on the second visit. And I said, well, that's fun with numbers. That's the, the new math, if you will. But if you really look at it, you're only telling me about the ones that you got. What about the 21 that you didn't get? In reality, what he failed to realize is he actually closed 40% on the first visit and 10% on the follow-up, which is that 50%. But 100% he, he quoted on the first visit. The problem is 21 he didn't get. Remember, he told me about the ones that he got, not the ones that he didn't. The 21 that he didn't get, he still quoted on the initial visit. The problem with that is, is he fell on deaf ears. Some of those people, I believe, would have bought from him had he quoted them when they were ready to buy. Not just when he had an opening on the board or he was out there and wanted to, to sell or he needed to make a commission. So I told him, I said, his name was Mark, and I said, Mark, you need to focus in on doing more two-call closes because here's what you're going to realize. Only about 10 to 20% of the people will make a decision, a buying decision on the initial visit. 10 to 20% of the people will make a buying decision on the initial visit. And maybe another 10% of the people who you go out to visit with aren't going to buy from you at all. So when you add those numbers together, that's 20 to 30% right there. So when we start you know, looking at the numbers, and we'll dive into some more numbers here uh, a little bit later, when we dive into the numbers a little bit, what you come to realize is that 60 to 70 percent of the time, you should be doing a two-call close. 60 to 70 percent of the time. Because 10 percent of the people aren't going to buy from you for no reason or any reason, and 10 percent aren't going to buy from you because of the way the company has positioned itself. 
We just don't know what 10% 10 10 are the no-buys and 10% are going to buy because of the company. So when I add that to these numbers, right, we get up into that 30-40% range, and so the net is basically 60-70%. to 70%. And so what does that mean? 60-70% to 70 of the time, you should be doing a multi-contact uh, uh, closing opportunity with a customer or connection opportunity because you're going you're gonna to end up being irrelevant. You give all your information on the initial visit like Mark did, 21 of the people had forgotten about him. In fact, he didn't even follow up. Now, I know uh, our listeners are basically saying uh, yes to this question. Have you ever got a lead, have you ever got a sale because the customer said you're the only one who gave me the quote? You're the only one who called me back. So in reality, what they're telling you is nobody follows up. Everybody misses it on the back end. They go out and they give a quote, and then they may leave one message or two messages. They might send an email or a text nowadays, which is weak, but nobody's following up. You have to understand, life goes on for these customers. Life happens, right? Maybe they lose their job. Maybe a pandemic strikes. Maybe the car you know, breaks down. So, you know, somebody gets hurt at school. Somebody dies in their life. Guess what happened? They would talk to you, yes, and they had you out there today, but they weren't ready to buy today. And then the event happened in their life, and life got in the way of them making a buying decision. Yet you weren't there when they were ready to make the decision. You didn't follow up. So follow-up is the key. The best salespeople are those that follow up the best as well. But they also quote and are relevant at the right time. They're willing to go ahead and give the information at the right time to the customer. So you've got to focus in on getting a 60 to 70% two-call close. Because price points today have gotten so high, the customer's not going to probably make a buying decision on the initial visit. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to get multiple quotes. In fact, the statistics say 77% of the people who said they were going to get multiple quotes ended up not getting multiple quotes. So keep that in mind when you're thinking about going out there and running a one or a two call close because the cost of a no is high and you're missing out on opportunity that you could otherwise and should otherwise get if you remained relevant to the customer's process. So let's take a look at some other statistics. So considering some other statistics, let's take a deeper dive on connection ratio. You call it closing ratio or conversion. I call it connection ratio. But we want to maximize that. We want to maximize the potential of that connection ratio with customers. We know we're not going to connect with everybody, right? So let's take a look at the numbers. Statistically speaking, I find about 10% of the people aren't going to buy from you no matter what. For any reason or no reason at all, they just don't. Uh, and I call that the no-go, right? So for whatever reason, could be the color of your shirt or something like that, they're just not going to buy from you. And then 10% of the people also aren't going to buy from you because of the company, the way the company positions itself, the markets it serves, the products it serves, the pricing, the messages that it puts out there. And so 10% of the people aren't going to connect or resonate with the company and therefore aren't going to you know, want to do business with you. And it has nothing to do with you as an individual. And never take this personally because it's not. It's all about business. But 10% no-go, 10% no because of the company. And then I believe you get 25% of the people that will buy from you because if you show up and you're professional and you're respectful and you're courteous and you show up on time and you provide timely and relevant information to them, their home, their problems and their needs and their wants and their wishes, I believe you'll get 25% of those people, no matter what. Just show up, be professional, respectful, courteous, do the right things, don't say the wrong things, don't be offensive, and make sure you give them the information that they need. And as I said to you uh, before, about 10 to 20% of those are going to buy on the first visit. Now, when you add that plus these two, two statistics, you're looking at somewhere between 30 to 40% of the people 
again, are going to buy, uh, make a buying decision on the first visit, which leaves that 60 to 70% of the people that I mentioned that you do a two-call close or multi-call uh, or multi-contact uh, visit with that customer. Now that leaves 55% of the market up for grabs, right? 55% of the opportunities that you go out, out on, right? Because we got 45 here, at least 55% that you still have to get, that you can earn. Now, I believe you can earn about another 25% of the people to buy from you by being valuable, being valuable to the customer. Benchmark your company to the standard of the industry. Don't make it a competitive thing. It's not an apples to apples comparison, A company versus B company versus C company. How about it's us versus the standard? And set the standard real high that what you should do as a contractor. And if you're going to buy this from any contractor, here's what you want to make sure that you get. ACCA Manual J, Manual G, uh, Manual D, Manual S, Manual T. That they do an airflow analysis, that they do an indoor air quality analysis, that they do an energy calculation, so forth and so on. So benchmark it to a standard because most contractors don't even play to the standards. They don't even play to the, the, governing, uh, the governing bodies of the industry that mandate how we design systems. Most of them don't even do load calculations. In fact, I know statistically speaking, 80% of all contractors will not do a load on every house that they go to. That's part of the job. I get it, you might be able to, to, to guesstimate or you may have done a house right down the street or whatnot, but the average customer gets to do this 1.2 times in their lives. There's another statistic. But if they get to do this 1.2 times in their lives, you need to make sure that you educate them, teach them how to buy and where value comes from. And where value comes from is you, the contractor. In fact, 70% of the manufacturing process takes place in the home. It's not about the box. In fact, the best boxes could be rendered completely useless if the design is wrong. Meaning you, do, you size the, pro, uh, the equipment improperly, you don't match up the ductwork, you don't modify the ductwork to get the airflow uh, that the, the system needs, you're looking at some problems there. So again, benchmark to the standard. National Comfort Institute, Comfort Institute, uh, BPI, ACCA, AHRI, the Department of Energy and EPA and Energy Star. There are so many standards that you can point to that we as contractors have to match up to. And that way when a customer, if they do get multiple quotes, measures everybody up to the standard because you've taught them how to buy and where value comes from. That's how a customer gets what we like to call the best possible outcome. And that's what they want. That's what they hope for when they call a contractor is the best possible outcome. They want someone to be successful at helping them achieve what is in their mind the best possible outcome. For them, not for your company, not to fill the schedule, not for you to get a sale, not for you to make a buck, but that you're intentionally going to look out for them in their best interest. And you don't have to be 10 to 20% better than the competition. How about 1% better? And show the customer the differences that make the difference. If the customer is getting multiple quotes and you know who the competitors are that they're getting quotes from, well don't go ahead and compare yourself again to the competition, go ahead and make sure that they're comparing everybody to the standards, the third party standards, because that's an independent agency, if you will, that we all have to kind of uh, subscribe to and measure up to. But talk about the differences that make the difference in their lives, and they're gonna be the differences that make the difference in their health and their safety and the, the quality and standard of living that they have. Because you wanna exceed their expectations, the customer's expectations, that is, by achieving the best possible outcome, going above and beyond what anybody else would even dare to consider because most of your, your uh, competition out there anyway just wants to change out a box. So you want to make sure that you're offering to do other things that com the competitors won't. 
won't even consider, wouldn't even dare offering bigger value proposition, but that goes beyond even sometimes the scope of work. What if you were to take down the holiday lights around the, you know, around the holidays for the customers? What if you were to offer to put them up? What if you were to offer to take away a bulk trash item like a, an old appliance that's in the backyard or the garage that they couldn't get rid of because they don't have a truck? Uh, what if you were to you know, clean up a problem that's in the basement that has nothing to do with the scope of work that you're doing? Um, what if you were to go ahead and uh, you know, uh, do something that improves the, you know, the quality and standard of living after the job is done, like maybe a whole house cleaning? Extend the warranties, add maintenance, ex expand the scope of work, if you will, as well. Those are some other things that you can also do to not only exceed the customer's expectations, but to also exceed your competition. And then lastly, add value to their lives. We call it emotional currency. Now, that's going to be specific to the customer. That's going to be specific to their story. What's going on in their lives? Not about the things that we do, but what is, what is that impact going to be? Maybe, maybe for example, they don't, they don't sleep very well because it's not very comfortable in their master bedroom. Maybe their son, Billy, has allergies and asthma and ends up missing school, can't play sports. These are some things that you can tap into with what it is that you do as a contractor but don't talk about the things that you do. Talk about the emotional currency. Talk about Billy and his allergies and asthma. Talk about how he's now going to have a, a, a safe haven or a sanctuary at home in which his immune system can cleanse itself. He doesn't take on all those toxins at home. And now maybe he can go out and play sports because he's been getting bombarded at school, outside, everywhere he goes, he's been getting bombard, bombarded. His immune system has been getting bombarded. Now he has an opportunity to cleanse his immune system at home and he can now go out and play and take on more out there in the environment. You're going to get a better night's sleep because Billy's getting a better night's sleep, but now you're also your room is comfortable and you're going to get a better night's sleep. You're also going to be able to enjoy that sunroom uh, off the back of the house because we're going to direct some more airflow back there. We're also going to optimize the return air coming back and we're going to put in a temperature sensing thermostat to give you complete automated control back there. That room that you've only been able to enjoy like six, seven months out of the year, you can now enjoy year-round. And tie it back into the story because that's what people buy. And they, and they spend emotional currency for those things more than they'll spend U.S. currency. And if somebody's willing to spend emotional currency, they'll definitely spend U.S. currency. So you're at basically 25% plus 25% because you've become more valuable to the customer. You've got a 50% closing ratio. But wait, there's more. You can get another 15% to buy from you by offering promotional incentives. So this is what you do with your marketing. This is where you actually do some direct mail, some newspaper, some radio, some television, and you make some offers. Maybe you even have some flyers that you hand out, and you do some promotional incentives. So this could be trade-in allowances, uh, rebates, tax credits, uh, free items that you're going to include with the scope of, of what you do. Maybe a free air filter with the purchase of a new system, so forth and so on. So those are promotional incentives that you put out into the marketplace. Then you're also going to leverage payment options. And I believe if you're not financing 60% of your business, 60% or more of your business, you're losing business. That's why you don't have this piece of the, the business coming into you. If you, tell, if you tell me everybody in your business pays cash, that's right. Every customer that does business with you pays cash. Because there's a lot of people who would do business with you if they could see that you're affordable to do business with. Because once you're valuable, you also need to become affordable. And that's what leverage does. Financing is payment options. And credit cards are a form of financing. So that's included in that 60%. And we'll do a deeper dive on that here uh, shortly. And be compelling. 
Now we teach this in the sales classes at EGIA about being compelling, connecting your story with the customer's story. Because at the end of the day, everybody wants to hear a story. The customers want to hear their story. They don't want to hear your story. And most contractors go through and they do a presentation. And they talk all about themselves. And, and even talk about themselves and how they're better than the competition. Well, that, of course that's exactly what you would say. But see, you're falling on deaf ears. In fact, what you find out nowadays, you don't even own your own brand. Your brand belongs to the consumer. And so you've got to be compelling and connect to the customer's emotional currency, find out what their story is, and be compelling in connecting your story to their story. Because when you are compelling, that's when people will spend money for things above and beyond what they would ever consider even reasonable. The funny thing is, is that when I ask people what Disney sells, everybody tells me that Disney sells magic, memories, uh, experience, happiness, dreams. In reality, Disney sells tickets and souvenirs and, and bad food. But everybody seems to think that they sell experiences and magic and memories and happiness and dreams. No, that's because they've done a masterful job at becoming compelling. And people will go down there. A family of four will spend uh, close to anywhere between six dollars and $10,000 for a week and come home and have absolutely nothing to show for it. Meaning, to get your airline tickets, to get your park tickets, to get your hotel, to get your rental car for the week, and to eat out and buy some souvenirs and so forth, you're going to spend for a family of four, not first class accommodations, you're going to spend between six dollars and $10,000 and you'll have nothing to show for it. Yet we can make their whole house healthy, safe, comfortable, energy efficient, uh, put a tourniquet on repair bills for a decade or more. And we can do it for in that, uh, in that, in that range, probably around ten, probably to 15000 20000 depending on the level of, uh, of equipment that they go with. And if we started to market and sell ourselves the way Disney does, we could do what Disney does. But we don't. We end up selling and focusing on things, and when, therefore we end up not selling our things, we end up owning our own things. If we want our customers to own th our things, we need to become more compelling. And so you've got to take what is now valuable and also make it affordable. And that's what the financing will do. And then lastly, you've got 10%. I believe you can get another 10% of the people out there to buy from you if you limit and track the leads. You heard me say a little bit earlier in this session, 1.5 leads per salesperson per day. So that's one some days, two other days, because you're going to do some go-backs, right? So if I give you two uh, leads today, and maybe I even give you a third because it's the heat of the summer season, and you have to do some go-backs, think about that. That's going to be about four or five appointments, plus windshield time, plus everything else you have to do in your day. So when you start limiting, limiting and tracking the leads and holding your salespeople accountable to final resolution, meaning they have to schedule, you, obviously you scheduled the first visit, they have to schedule the second visit, and they have to log that in just like you track a, uh, a service call. They have to uh, report in and tell you how that went on the second visit. If they schedule a phone call follow-up, they have to report in and tell you about that. They have to debrief after every single contact that they make with a customer. And that includes email or voicemail or, or just reaching out to a customer and having a phone conversation. They need the system updated so that we know where we stand. Here's the interesting thing about contractors. They put GPS on the trucks. Well, your truck is a liability. It has no opportunity to make you any money. But you'll, you'll track it relentlessly. In fact, you even track your service calls. Now, the KPI for an average service ticket is about $350, minimal, on a service call. We have the opportunity, as we saw a little bit earlier, $8,500 average ticket, if not even higher. 
and we're not putting GPS on sales leads, but we're tracking trucks and we're tracking service tickets, what about a, an opportunity that can generate thousands of dollars for you and also result, uh, result in some referrals for you? We need to put GPS on all of our leads and limit and track them by salesperson until the customer says yes, the customer says no, I'm not doing anything, or at least not right now, or I'm buying it from somebody else, or I'm just going to stick with what I got until it breaks. Well, then you can schedule that for a follow-up call in the future. But you need to hold the salespeople accountable to getting you a resolution, a resolution on every lead that you have. Because again, if we're driving towards the customer having the best possible outcome, because that's what our intent is. Our intent is not to sell. Our intent is to serve. And the way we serve is by giving customers good information uh, so they can make a good decision. I don't care what a customer does as long as they do it knowingly. I also just want to know uh, and get the professional respect and courtesy of getting a decision when they're done. If you don't want to do business with us, that's fine. Just let me know. I'm okay with a no as long as you're okay saying so. I'll be happy if you make a decision that you're happy with. Just let me know. Because when I came out here, my goal was to make sure you got the best possible outcome. And the way I do that is giving you good, relevant, timely information and making sure that you have all the information you need right up until the moment you make a final decision. But I need to you know, get that final decision as a sales professional. And then lastly, 5%. I believe that contractors lose about 5% because of indifference of the salesperson or the judgment of the salesperson. And that's fine by me. You know, they go out, sometimes they just don't connect with everybody and I leave it to their discretion if sometimes they don't think an opportunity is going to be the best opportunity for the company. Maybe it's a bad, dirty job that's going to just cause us a lot of problems or they think the customer will cause us a lot of headache and heartache along the way. I'm going to trust the judgment of my salespeople to end up losing 5% of those opportunities. So if you really think about it, 5% plus 10% and 10% is 25% is what we have the opportunity to lose, but we have the opportunity to gain 75%. Now, that's of every opportunity that you run as a salesperson. I think that's pretty, pretty uh, successful, if you can get to that. Now, why would you say you wouldn't want to go higher? Well, I believe if you go higher, that means you're probably priced too low. Maybe you should raise your prices, get less work, make more per opportunity, make more profit per opportunity. And again, this is driving it at that 15 to 20 plus percent net profit. Net profit's what we're focusing on. So again, driving for 15 to 20 percent plus on the net profit, 75 percent closing ratio, these are the, the uh, statistics that I see are the connection potential around the United States. Now, you could go higher, certainly on, if you've got service customers or service agreement customers, you can certainly get 85-90% of those, but you might only get 50% on the, uh, the internet leads, or you know, 25 or 30% on yellow page leads, or 50% on marketed leads, so forth and so on. But you can see on the whole book of business, it's about 75%. Now let's do a deeper dive because I did say I wanted to kind of take a moment and go back to that 60%. So let's go back and take a look at some statistics on what we can expect on driving financing through the business and see what we can get as far as driving revenue. So taking a look at the statistics for driving financing into your business, credit cards, financing, payment options if you will, I like to call that leverage. So leverage increases the marketing and sales performance within your company. Now, I believe you can increase your opportunities within your company by 25%. Meaning, if you put that you offer financing, and not just your percent financing, but that you offer low payment, long-term options for customers to get the lowest payment possible, I believe that you can increase your marketed opportunities by 25%.
I believe you can increase the closing ratio or the connection ratio by 15 to 25% by optimizing financing. Now I said 15% on the board over there to be conservative, but I've seen it go as high as 25%. Because when you get really good at offering payment plans to customers, it shows customers how things can not only be valuable, but they can also be affordable. You can increase your average ticket by about 30% by including payment options for customers. Because when customers see that they can spend maybe $100 to $200, $300 a month, think about that. Most of us have a cell phone bill that's probably more than $300 a month. And we own nothing for it. We don't even own the phone anymore. We have, we have to turn that in at the end of the plan unless we buy it outright. But I can increase the average ticket for a consumer by offering bigger scopes of work, better level of product, um, you know, enhanced solutions, if you will. Maybe add on a, a generator or something like that if you do electrical, or maybe add on a water heater if you do plumbing, and expand that scope of work and take, everything, take care of everything all at one time and increase that average ticket by 30%. I believe you can also increase complete system sales. So instead of selling just components like furnaces or air conditioners, do a complete system and increase those by 20%. And close up to 75%, as I said a few minutes ago, by offering these payment options. That's how you maximize the connection potential with customers, is by offering and leveraging uh, financing. And I believe, and I have seen around the country, again, conservatively speaking, that you can sell $2 million worth of business, $2 million plus dollars worth of business on financing alone. That's in addition to the cash and check option customers that you get too. Now, people, if you do a good job with this, about maybe 10 to 15% of the people will go ahead and pay by uh, cash or check. So if we really focus on driving 90% of the business that we do through financing, I see salespeople across the board, across the United States, selling more than $2 million. And again, that may vary by your market based on the cost of living uh, as to where you are. So let's take a look at some other results with financing. I believe you can shift the typical average ticket that we see around the United States, which is $5,000 for a component, and drive that towards those complete solutions that we said would go up to about $8,500 on average. Now that's adding no extra work. That is just changing out the equipment. But I believe you can convert the system at $8,500 to a system with IAQ up around 10 grand or more. You can then go add in the system, the IAQ, and performance modifications. Fix the ductwork, seal it, right size the duct system, add a return, put the dampers in, replace the registers, so forth and so on takes you up to now 13,000. And if you add in the IAQ and the performance mods there, you're at 15,000. And then you layer in IAQ system, performance uh, mods on the ductwork, now the building envelope as well, and you're at 18 to 25,000. And again, adjust for your market. California and New York, cost of living is gonna be considerably higher. You're probably up in that 30, $35,000 range there. And again, that's not even layering in the potential for other things that you can do for this customer. But shifting the book of business with financing is powerful stuff. So let's go ahead and take a look at two salespeople, one who's very effective with financing and one who's not so much effective with financing and see how the things play out. If I gave a salesperson 10 leads, both salespeople 10 leads, and one's very good at offering financing but the other one not so much, one person probably gonna sell three out of 10 for uh, average ticket of $8,500 and we're only going to improve that average ticket on, the, on this scenario, right? So we're gonna go ahead from $8,500 to $10,200. We're gonna get an increase or a lift by 20% on the average ticket. Closing no more business. So look at the, the two numbers that we've got. We go from $8,500 uh, 
without financing to $10,000, uh, $10,200 with financing. We then increased that book of business on three sales from $25,500 to $30,600. We increased the total income to the salesperson at a 10% commission rate of tw from $2,550, $2,550 to $3,060. And for the company at a 20% net profit, we go from $5,100 to $6,120. Now, if we leave the average ticket exactly the same and we increase the closing ratio, meaning we get more sales but we keep the average ticket the same, the numbers basically play as follows. So closing ratio goes from 30% to 50%. We now sell five jobs instead of three. Both average tickets are both at $8,500 uh, even. Salesperson A, basically who's not offering financing, generates $25,500 in revenue. Salesperson B ends up generating $42,500 in revenue. Salesperson A ends up at 10% commission, $25.50 in personal income, or $42.50 in personal income. And in uh, salesperson A scenario, the company ends up with $5,100 in, in company income, or $8,500 income by shifting uh, the closing ratio. Well, what happens if we put in both? What if we are able to increase the average ticket and increase the closing ratio? Salesperson A still sells three jobs, still sells at $8,500 average ticket, still sells $25,500, still earn, personally earns $2,550 on personal income, and the company still makes that same $5,100. But for running no more leads and costing no more marketing, but capitalizing on the opportunities that we get, making more with the business that we get, salesperson B sells, gets an average ticket of $10,200, 50% closing ratio, five jobs now, total book of business of $51,000, personal income to the salesperson of $5,100, and company income of $10,200. And so by just layering in financing alone, and that's why I said the KPI for having 60% of your business or more financed, and that includes those credit cards, is what's going to drive this book of business and you don't have to run any more leads. You don't have to consume any more time. You keep the crews busier. You get more of a backlog if you have it. You don't have to, to scrape and scramble for work because you're making more with the leads that you got. You don't need more leads. You need to do a better job with the leads that you have. Financing allows you to do that. So, as I started out saying, sales is not a numbers game. It's the activities and the behaviors and the things that we do that get those results. Those are the statistics of how we played the game. Focus on the execution of the game, and the results will be what they should be, when they should be. And you'll end up getting more business. And at the end of the day, that's what you want. But don't focus on the statistics. Keep the statistics, but focus on the behaviors and the activities that are going to drive the results that you want. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. We love this special Seizing the Summer content, right? We do it every year. It's special content just for the summer. Now, if you like this content and you're not a member, you can get full access to the series right now by filling out the form on this page. This is powerful, powerful content that you can implement all summer long to maximize your profits and be prepared for the dreaded slow season. That's it for today, folks. We'll see you next week here on Cracking the Code. Until then, bye-bye for now.